In that Dr. Graves researched documents and records of adoption agencies, as well as other researchers' work, to obtain the information presented in this book. The perspectives in this book are less those of the adoptees themselves and more from the perspectives of social workers and adoption workers, as well as adoptive parents of Korean Black adoptees. But towards the end of the episode, I will cover some information about Korean Black adoptees themselves. According to a description of the book on the NYU Press website, quote, The Korean War left hundreds of thousands of children in dire circumstances, but the first large-scale transnational adoption efforts involved the children of American soldiers and Korean women. Korean laws and traditions stipulated that citizenship and status passed from father to child which made the children of U.S. soldiers legally stateless. Korean black children faced additional hardships because of Korean beliefs about racial purity and the segregation that structured African-American soldiers' lives in the military and throughout U.S. society. The African-American families who tried to adopt Korean Black children also faced and challenged discrimination in the child welfare agencies that arranged adoptions. End quote. This episode is part of our Adoption from Korea season of the podcast. Before we get into the book, I wanted to speak a little more about our Adoption in Korea season. First of all, I highly encourage you to listen to the other episodes of this season because that will explain a lot more thoroughly some of the subject matter that we will be bringing up here again. So if you have not already done so, please take some time to check out the other episodes of this important season. I mentioned in my previous episodes that I'm not someone who either was adopted or who adopted anyone and I don't have close relatives or friends who were adopted either. I also am not of mixed race or black heritage, and mixed race children's adoption in Korea, specifically those with black and Korean heritage, are the topic of Dr. Graves' book. But it's important to me to cover adoption because this is a major part of the history of Korea, which is a country that has adopted out one of the largest numbers of children abroad. Adoptions from Korea to other countries continue to this day. Adoption, including transracial, transnational adoption, is an extremely complicated topic where Not all stories are just a simple happy story or even just a simple sad story. We have to talk about intense topics such as child abandonment, child abuse, child death, war, poverty, politics, imperialism, race, racism, identity, sex work, and more. A lot of these topics will be discussed in today's episode, and just a note that I will be using the terminology and language used in this book and in other materials I reference. Please note that I will not be able to cover everything that Dr. Graves documented in her book, so if you are interested in this topic, I highly encourage you to go out and read her book. In this season of the podcast, we have read and heard about how Korean orphans faced many issues both before and after being placed for intercountry adoption. For Korean Black orphans, and reminder that not all Korean orphans actually were truly orphans with deceased biological parents, had additional issues that they had to contend with the primary one being the discrimination that they faced. A New York Times article from 2023 states, quote, The baby export business in South Korea began with what critics called a deep-seated xenophobia and prejudice against biracial children. 
In its post-war years, the country's first president, Syngman Rhee, pursued a policy he called One State for One Ethnic People, which encouraged sending biracial children born to American soldiers and Korean women to their father's land. Many destitute mothers of biracial children faced a stark choice, place their babies up for overseas adoption or raise them alone in poverty and disgrace, end quote. Many Korean black children were born during and after the Korean War in the 1950s and 60s to Korean women working at Camp Town brothels and African-American soldiers who frequented those Camp Town brothels. You may remember from my Me Too season that the Korean government operated and earned money from these government-sanctioned brothels. Aside from racial discrimination, as I have mentioned in other episodes of this adoption season, the stigma that women faced of being single mothers and the additional discrimination that children of single mothers who were sex workers faced was a big reason why Korean black children were adopted to places outside of Korea. Also, international adoption itself was a major money-making enterprise for the South Korean government and was a boon to its economy. Meanwhile, back in 1950s USA, as Dr. Graves covers in her book, African-American families were facing discrimination and prejudice which made it difficult for them to adopt children domestically. This is because at the time, certain states in the U.S. had many segregation laws which separated what African-American and Black members of U.S. society could do from what white Americans could do. These were known as Jim Crow segregation laws. I will have a link in my show notes which will explain these laws more if you are not familiar with them. These segregation laws affected African-American families' ability to adopt within the U.S., so many looked towards international adoption as a way to build their families. Korea had this quote-unquote convenient system of private proxy adoptions, which made it easier for African-American families to successfully adopt Korean black children. We'll get more into that later. In our earlier episode about the book From Orphans to Adoptees by Sujin Pate, we learned that the media played a big part in raising awareness and playing on the feelings of prospective adoptive parents in the U.S. who heard about Korean orphans' hardships. This type of media coverage led to an outpouring of American families who felt for those children and wanted to adopt them. The same is true for Korean Black orphans. While they didn't get as big of a PR campaign as fully Korean children in orphanages did, the plight of Korean black babies was documented and disseminated in African-American publications, such as Jet and Ebony magazines. According to Dr. Graves, Ebony published an article called How to Adopt Korean Babies. This article encouraged African-American families to adopt Korean black children by emphasizing how much more difficult life could be for Korean black children due to the racial discrimination they faced in Korea. Similar to white prospective adoptive parents, African-American adoptive parents were also sometimes motivated to adopt by a desire to rescue these children, not only from their dire circumstances, but also racial discrimination and the stigma of being born to a mother who was a sex worker or even perceived to be a sex worker for foreign soldiers. As discussed in the episode From Orphan to Adoptee, Holt's adoption program considered Korean children with black heritage to be quote-unquote unadoptable. Due to this, many children who fell into the unadoptable, quote-unquote, category, including disabled children or older children, had to remain living in orphanages until age 18, at which point they had to leave the orphanage and look after themselves. Aside from this, Korean cultural and societal ideas of family created conditions for racial discrimination against Korean black children, which also left them legally stateless. It was already mentioned that because of the patrilineal system of family structures in South Korea, and since mixed-race Korean babies were born to foreign fathers and Korean mothers, such children did not belong to a family, legally speaking, and therefore did not have Korean citizenship. 
they were not considered Korean under President Rhee's One State for One Ethnic People thing. Unlike other Korean orphans like Lisa Ulim Hoblum, who was not of African descent, and whose graphic memoir we covered in another episode, it also did not appear that mixed-race children from Korea were given an orphan hojok, which was a special version of a family registrar, where the sole member of the family listed is the orphan themselves. Therefore, there was a need for the adoption of Korean Black children abroad, because even though racism existed in the U.S., it was at least more common for Black children to exist in the U.S. than it was in Korea. The U.S. also had more of a community for individuals with Black heritage there. For those Korean Black children who had features or the skin complexion close to that of someone with Black heritage, there was also this ability for Koreans to automatically guess that they were most likely the product of a relationship involving an American GI and a camp town, Gijijon, which was the term used for camp town sex workers. Even if a child was born to a Korean mother who was not a camp town sex worker and an African-American father, this was the common assumption that other Korean individuals made, and therefore, the same stigma applied. Being considered the product of such a scandalous union led to further stigma and ostracization for such children in Korean society. Due to U.S. segregation laws in the 50s and 60s, social workers in Korea typically placed Korean Black children with African-American families due to their policy of placing mixed-race Korean children with families that were racially similar to the children's biological fathers. This was part of a process called matching, which social workers did for orphans to match them with prospective adoptive parents. Dr. Graves spends quite a lot of time looking at the various hardships faced by African-American prospective adoptive parents and their difficulties with adopting through social workers both domestically and in South Korea. I'll just mention a few things about this that I found to be interesting. Dr. Graves points out the difference between civilian African-American families and military African-American families living on Asian military bases, such as bases in Japan. By virtue of working for the military, military African-American families had many benefits compared to their civilian counterparts in the U.S., in some cases, these African-American individuals felt they experienced less racial discrimination on the military bases abroad than they had while living in the U.S. One example that stuck out to me from the book was that of an adoptive African-American mother living in a military base in Japan who had previously worked in the U.S. as a domestic worker. But in Japan, she had the means to not only not work outside of the home, but in fact have her own hired help. For children moving to the U.S. rather than to U.S. military bases in other parts of Asia, U.S. segregation laws were, as I said, a factor in Korean adoptions. By working with African-American families, social workers working in Korea had to become more flexible about the requirements for the types of families that they deemed as suitable adoptive families. For example, in the eyes of social workers, ideal adoptive mothers would not work outside of the home due to the belief that their sole job should be parenting. But in the U.S., many African-American women had to work outside of the home out of necessity since African-Americans were not paid at an equal scale for equal work and could not get high-paying jobs due to Jim Crow segregation laws at the time. It was not until the U.S. Civil Rights Act of 1964, which legally prohibited workplace segregation and discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, that African-Americans in the U.S. had more equal protection in the eyes of the law. Due to the need for African-American women to work outside of the home prior to this law, Children were often cared for not only by their parents, but also by neighbors or other community members. This type of child rearing, where the mother worked outside of the home and child rearing was supported by neighbors and extended family, was one that social workers working in Korea had to learn to become accustomed to when placing children with African-American families. Aside from matching Korean black children with African-American families whenever possible, 
social workers also sometimes place children with another type of family, those headed by interracial couples. According to the book, most stories about intercountry adoption do not include the stories of interracial couples who adopted Korean children, including mixed-race Korean children. I won't get into it too much because it's beyond the scope of this podcast, but I found it really fascinating when Dr. Graves wrote that the phenomenon of white parents adopting Korean children, including Korean black children, was more publicized in media because it made it seem like racial discrimination in the U.S. was not as bad as people thought. Dr. Graves writes, quote, There, white adoptive parents of Korean children, actions were reassuring to some who worried about the state of race relations in the United States, end quote. Dr. Graves also mentions the fact that some families, quote, imagined that their multiracial families would demonstrate the potential for interracial love and harmony to overcome racial intolerance in the United States, end quote. We've already covered various topics so far, but I want to spend some time now looking at exactly how Korean Black children were adopted to the U.S. One way was similar to how other Korean orphans ended up being adopted out to American families. Their plight was publicized by U.S. military service personnel. Dr. Graves names Captain Sylvester Booker as the first African-American to adopt a Korean child to the U.S. back in 1953. Like so many Korean children adopted to the U.S., the child Captain Booker brought back was not technically an orphan, since the biological mother was not deceased. To bring a Korean child to the U.S. like this in what was not a formal adoption required some legal maneuvering. Captain Booker claimed that the child's mom wanted Captain Booker to give her child a better life in the U.S., After some work, Congress actually passed a private law just for Captain Booker and his son, Ri Songu. Like Harry Holt, the so-called father of Korean adoption, American media portray the acts of Captain Booker as one of heroism. Also similar to the adoption of other Korean children, the use of proxy adoptions was one popular way to adopt Korean children to other countries. A reminder that proxy adoption involves really just anybody who could come as a representative and complete the paperwork necessary to apply for adoption of a Korean child and take that child back to the U.S. or whichever country on behalf of the actual adoptive parents, meaning that parents would be adopting a child sight unseen and the child would suddenly be living with people they had never once laid eyes on. As mentioned in my previous episodes, this practice was highly frowned upon in the field of social work since prospective parents could not be properly vetted or matched to the children. But people who were not professionally trained social workers, such as Harry Holt, founder of the Holt Adoption Program, were permitted to do these types of adoptions anyway in Korea. Dr. Graves also mentions a person who was not a professional social worker, Glenn Skogman, who worked with the Korean reverend, Reverend Huang. Reverend Huang and his wife worked with Mr. Skogman to promote the use of proxy adoptions of Korean black children. Basically, Skogman convinced African-American families that he could help them bypass some of the legal red tape needed to complete adoptions. Reverend Huang and his wife even presented to American families belonging to a Black Baptist church and appealed to them to adopt from the orphanage they ran in Busan. According to Dr. Graves, quote, many families took advantage of this legal provision because it usually saved them time and money, end quote. However, in 1955, Skogman had his passport revoked by the U.S. State Department due to child welfare agencies' complaints and questioning of his actions. The fact that people who were not professionals were permitted to take part in the welfare of children who were in such vulnerable positions is honestly kind of frightening to me, and the fact that this type of proxy adoption was so common in Korea, but the State Department thought that the questions about Skogman's acts were serious enough to revoke his passport frightened me a lot. I really hope those children were okay and grew up well. 
The next, and to me, most fascinating story of proxy adoption presented by Dr. Graves in her book is that of a woman who she calls Alice Warren. Alice Warren is interesting because she herself was yet another non-professional person running an adoption program that helped with Korean international adoptions. And Alice Warren was an African-American woman. Dr. Graves writes, quote, Officials with the State Department of Social Welfare of Kansas had begun investigating Mrs. Warren in January of that year when they learned that she was attempting to place Korean Black children with families in her community. These officials believed that Warren's efforts to help children were actually putting the children in danger, end quote. Now, Warren was herself inspired to assist with Korean adoptions after reading an article about the plight of Korean Black children. At that point, she contacted Harry Holt, the head of Holt Adoption Program. Holt apparently asked her for help for child placements in Kansas City, which is a city in the United States, state of Kansas. Warren wanted her actions to be kept under wraps for some reason. Dr. Graves states that Harry Holt may have financed her travel to South Korea. Through proxy adoption, Warren was able to take eight Korean Black children with her back to Kansas City. Warren did this type of trip several times, according to Dr. Graves. Alice Warren wanted assistance from the State Department of Social Welfare of Kansas with transnational adoption, but they would only agree to help her with ISS, International Social Services, approval. Since social workers did not believe in or practice proxy adoptions, which, again, is the practice of letting some completely random person adopt a bunch of kids and distribute them to unknown, unvetted adoptive parents abroad whom the children have never met, this approval would never happen. So Warren just continued her own proxy adoption practices that she'd already been doing. She did her own vetting of potential adoptive parents by doing some of the checks that were already standard for adoption in the field of social work. But again, from what I understand from the book, she was not a trained or licensed social worker, and she was not following any kind of formal process. The problems began when it was noted that Warren was selecting some prospective parents who had originally been rejected by social workers for inter-country adoption from Korea. In fact, some of these families reached out to Warren after having the adoptions they were seeking stall in order to speed up the process to obtain a child. ISS, however, had doubts about Warren, including whether her stories checked out or whether or not she ever actually worked with Harry Holt. One bizarre thing about Warren that Dr. Graves notes in the book is that, quote, Warren had misled people by saying she had a letter from President Eisenhower to give legitimacy to her plan to get all of the Korean Black children to families in the United States. Warren did not explain how her plan would work, but she, like Harry Holt, believed that she had divine inspiration and assistance to rescue Korean Black children, end quote. Eventually, the state of Kansas prohibited Warren from bringing any more children to the U.S. via proxy adoption. Other than the previously mentioned examples, most Korean Black babies were adopted to the U.S. through Harry Holt's adoption agency, Holt Adoption Program, which we talked about a ton in other episodes. The main requirement for adoption through the Holt Adoption Program was that the prospective adoptive parents be Christians. Holt Adoptive Program, as I mentioned, also flew many babies to the U.S. from Korea on private chartered planes, known as baby lifts. Dr. Graves writes the following, quote, An article in the African-American magazine Sepia, titled Adoption by Proxy, Red Tape Abolished in Case of Koreans, declared that Holt is a revered citizen in a countless number of Negro homes because his liberal policies made it possible for African-Americans to qualify for adoptions, end quote. However, these baby lifts were not without its risk, since at least one baby died on such a flight, and Dr. Graves wonders about the possibility whether some children may have accidentally ended up with a different family than the one that they had been intended to be given to by the proxy. So at this point, I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about the story told by a Black Korean adoptee 
Milton Washington. I heard Milton speak to the BBC podcast show Lives Less Ordinary back in 2022. I think Milton's story is somewhat unusual because he remembers so much of his story and his life in Korea. He was an older child at the time that his biological mother relinquished him. Born to a Camptown brothel worker mother and a black GI soldier father who he never knew, Milton remembers being affectionately called Miltona by his Korean mother. He grew up in a really rural area of South Korea, which he describes as a village with thatched huts and rice paddy fields. His skin color was darker than that of other children in his village, and he recalls being taunted and considered an outsider. He and his mother were in fact outcast from the village and later moved to a city, Dongjujon, which was home to a U.S. military base. Living in that town close to the military base, Milton finally saw other people who were black, meaning the African-American soldiers stationed at that base. Because he too was black and they could tell that about him, they would often give him money in the form of bills sometimes rather than just loose change. While his mom was out working at nightclubs, Milton ran around in the streets and earned money from African-American soldiers and by stealing. The African-American soldiers referred to him as Slicky Boy, which meant thief. The nightclubs in which Milton's mom would work would often get raided and Milton's mom would have to spend some time in jail. So his mom would drop him off at orphanages for short-term care, which is a concept we've previously discussed in other episodes of this season, that sometimes biological parents would leave children in orphanages with the intent to return and pick them back up again later. Milton's mom did this with him many times. Unfortunately, one day Milton's mother did not come back. Milton was eventually adopted by an African-American family in the U.S. I don't want to give the whole story away and I'd rather you hear this story from Milton directly, so I'll stop talking about him here, but you can find links to listen to the podcast he participated in for the BBC and the article in my show notes. Thanks to Dr. Graves' book, I hope I was able to shed a little light on how intercountry adoption was different for some mixed-race Korean children compared to other Korean children. As I said, you should definitely check out Dr. Graves' book for a much more thorough analysis of the adoption of Korean Black children. You can also check out the podcast Adapted for additional stories of Korean Black adoptees. Special thanks to AO for designing the blog. Special thanks to Emma Rouge for the podcast cover art. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks, bye.